This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 48 of Inside COVID-19, one highlighted by the effective ending of South Africa's lockdown of almost three months. In an address to the nation this evening, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced that previously closed business sectors such as sit-down restaurants, hairdressers and even cinemas will reopen soon, albeit with strict social distancing guidelines. Also coming up in this episode, we visit with Discovery Chief Executive Adrian Gore and get the inside track on excitement around the 80-year-old drug dexamethasone which is produced by Durban-headquartered Aspen, which, after a 4,500-person Oxford University trial, is showed to deliver a 30% drop in mortalities among COVID-19 patients. There's scary news, though, out of South America, which is now officially the world's coronavirus hotspot. We'll hear how restaurants, which have opened elsewhere in the world, have had to adjust and we speak to Vumacam's chief executive, Ricky Crook, about the way criminals have adjusted to the new normal. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In an address to the nation this evening, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said that COVID-19 cases in the country had risen above 80,000, with a third of the cases recorded in the past week alone. Likening it to a marathon, he said that even 100 days after their first infections, the country is still near the beginning of a pandemic that will be with us for many more months, perhaps years. Notwithstanding this fact, the President also announced that many sectors closed since March the 27th will be reopening to preserve the livelihoods of the more than half a million people employed in them. Following further discussions with industry representatives on stringent prevention protocols and after advice from our scientists and consultation at the provincial level with our premiers as well as discussions in the National Coronavirus Command Council, the Cabinet has decided to ease restrictions on certain other economic activities. And these activities include restaurants for sit-down meals, accredited and licensed accommodation, with the exception of home-sharing accommodation like Airbnb, conferences and meetings for business purposes, and in line with restrictions on public gatherings cinemas and theatres to be aligned to limitations on the gathering of people, casinos, personal care services including hairdressers and beauty services, non-contact sports such as tennis, golf, 
cricket and others. Contact sports will be allowed only for training and modified activities with restricted use of facilities. Through the easing of the lockdown, we are continuing to balance our overriding objective of saving lives and preserving livelihoods. It is important to remember that this is a global pandemic and that most countries are facing exactly the same challenges that we are facing and they must find ways to resolve the dilemmas exactly the same dilemmas that we are facing inside covid-19 from biz news Adrian Gore is the Group Chief Executive at Discovery. You issued quite a comprehensive trading update on Monday, Adrian, a lot of which, not surprisingly, is the impact of COVID-19, which for this financial year to the end of June is going to be about four months of the trading conditions. I suppose, bottom line it, how much has COVID-19 hurt? Well, Eric, it's, it actually hasn't, you know, if you look operation, uh, at operating profits, it's, it's actually been quite a robust period. The real effect of COVID is on provisions we're making. So to an extent, if you actually look at the underlying operating performance, it's actually very, very good. The dynamics of COVID are coming through certainly over the last number of months. They're very, very complex, and I think we're analyzing very carefully. But I think the real impact is on a substantial provision we've made. And our view, which I think is right, is to try and create a provision where We've kind of paid it forward in a sense. We've tried to estimate all the effects in the future of COVID and taking the provision now. So it's really a tale of two cities. One of, I think, strong operating performance. The other is the provision. Having a big business in the UK and vitality and the UK being so much further down its COVID-19 curve than in South Africa, have you used what you're seeing there to extrapolate what might be happening here? As you said, they're further in the they're further into the pandemic. So, you know, we've modeled to try and understand what would happen, we've modeled both claims effects and you know, mortality, morbidity, sickness, and economic effects and lapses. The UK's further ahead, but you know, we've used data from Imperial College modeling, we've used our own data, we've used a lot of modeling techniques to get to what we think are the right numbers around expected future claims. The UK being further ahead gives that more credibility in a sense. You know, so it's an iterative process of understanding. In South Africa we've had in our total base, about 100 deaths, which is quite substantial, but the data is still quite scanty. So you're right, I think the UK is more accurate in a sense, but there's a lot of really good data in which to to model. So we're feeling, I think, that using both the UK and SA, the modelling is probably conservative, but probably, hopefully, very, very useful. So we're using, you know, international data. We're cross-referencing on all kinds of other variables. You know, given our base, we know through vitality and health checks and all the various, you know, we, we know through every single individual, their health status, what, what kind of comorbidities they have. We've actually isolated about 30,000 what we think are vulnerable people in the base and reaching out to them, trying to make sure they're locked down, they're protected, etc. So we've got a lot of very rich data, but we, whether you can tell nationally yet, it's going to take some time, I think. Mm. Of those 30,000 that are at high risk, what have you done to try and protect them or to support them? Well, we've tried to reach out and our people are reaching out to the super, super vulnerable, trying to explain the consequences, trying to make sure they are taking precautions. So we're trying our best to manage what is a, a, a quite a sizable population. I mean, 30,000 people is significant in terms of a base of three, three and a half million. 
So we do need to to treat this like a war. You know, don't lose anyone. Make sure we can do it as best we can to educate and protect people. I think it's critical. And how do you identify those at most risk? Well, you know, the data is actually is now becoming quite specific. There's specific issues that make you susceptible to not to the infection, but to the, infect, the effects of the infection and to mortality. BMI is an obvious issue. Respiratory illness There's a number of key things that are now, I think, well known. So shifting through the data and sifting out those people, it becomes quite clear who is very, very vulnerable. I mean, there are no hard and fast rules. These are statistical probabilities. So it doesn't mean if you have that, then you definitely are going to die. Or if you don't, you're completely safe. But the data is very compelling. So it's not, if you do have the data, the ability to actually ascertain who is vulnerable is actually quite simple. Discovery is a business that relies on intermediaries to a large degree. And if these people can't sit down with their clients or your clients right now, how have they managed to continue to keep the, the doors open? Certainly the level five part of the lockdown, I think it was a very difficult time for intermediaries. But I think that, like all of us, we're learning to work kind of remotely. I think at this time, people are actually remarkably susceptible to concerns about healthcare, rightly so, and life insurance. There's kind of, how can I say, mind space for these kinds of discussions that I think are very important. And I, I do think new business is certainly down and it will take time to recover. But I think intermediaries are starting to learn to work online through Zoom. We've rolled out a number of products and support structures for intermediaries that help them online. I think this will have a, a, a tremendous impact on how people work, including intermediaries. So people will learn. That's just how it is. Do you think they're going to learn in other areas as well, this acceleration towards digital tools? I'm sure they will. I mean, you know, it's anecdotal. It's my view. I'm, I find I'm really, really productive, but I find it's business as usual stuff. I think it's hard to create new relationships. You know what I mean? It's hard to hustle and do new things online. So I certainly think the ability to go through the routines of work and working with the same people, even if it's on new stuff. I've been really productive on a lot of new big stuff that we're doing. and very exciting. But I, I'm not sure it's easy to create new relationships and entirely new opportunities, starting new business. I'm skeptical of our ability to shift at a rapid pace, but I do think some of the stuff is here to, to stay. And I think learning how to present on Zoom, for example, I've done a number of presentations I've lost a number of weeks to pretty serious presentations and proposals via Zoom. And it's actually a, it's a different skill. <laughs> it's quite interesting. So I think things will change for sure. So what tips can you pass on that you've learned from the Zoom <laughs> presentations? I don't know. I think, I think you're also finding you are what you are on Zoom. You know what I mean? Mm. Your kids come climbing up your back and things happen and people are actually more, what's the word, receptive and tolerant to that kind of stuff. But I do think the ability to present and to put your arguments across into a screen is, is a different is a different skill, I think, to talking across a boardroom table. It's maybe more easy. It might be democratizing. You know, some people are I think it's actually a lot easier to do and therefore I think hopefully more people can communicate better. It's less intimidating, I think. But what about the, one of the core essences of discovery is your innovation? And we've spoken about this many times over the years, how you encourage people to think differently. But if you aren't in the same room, does that creativity get affected? I actually don't know. I've, you know, I've got a screen here where I can see all, take 20 people on a, everyone has this gallery kind of view. And we've had a lot of, we're doing a lot of incredibly innovative things at the moment. And I actually don't, how can I say, I'm not even aware of the fact I'm not in the room with people anymore. We have a, a, a process at Discovery called Inspiring Excellence where our leadership team and whole staff 
kind of competing new ideas. We now did it virtually. So people presented the stuff via Zoom. It's actually very much the same. I'm finding some of the discussions are much more intense. I find the intensity of some of the work really, really productive. So as I say, I think it's, I think it'd be hard to work with entirely new people across a, a screen, but generally, I think we actually, we did a massive product launch over the last, I think it was about four or five weeks ago on a whole range of new products. We are not feeling that pain yet. I don't think quite the opposite. I think we're moving at a pace faster than we've ever moved before. And you're like you're in a, in a war, you know what I mean? Just the technology change is so quick in our products at the moment. Mm. And within the business itself, within the people who work in the business, how many of them are now sitting at home and perhaps working very differently to the way they did in the past? I think fully 80% of our entire staff base, so 12,000 people, you know, probably 10,000 or more at home. So they're working completely differently. And we're not getting, I mean, we, you know, if you look at our, uh, we measure every single issue, service levels, receptiveness, all those kinds of things are where they were before. So it's quite incredible how quickly people have adapted to this stuff. So it's a completely different way of working. And we've done a lot of good things. You know, we have webinars every few days of like key people. And so we're keeping a sense of community amongst the staff. There's a lot of rich communication. So I don't know how it plays out in the long term if you were to do this. Forever, I think it's hard to build a business, recruit them, you know, and have them at home. But with a, a, I think a very inspired, motivated team of, I think, fantastic people at home, they're doing well. They're doing really well. Adrian, reading through the trading statement, you mentioned resilience a number of times, the resilience of the discovery model and, and of the business itself. Just unpack that for me, would you? I think that in a pandemic, there's nothing more complex, I would guess, than insurance group. We're essentially in the line for claims and lapses, etc. But the model itself, I think, is structurally resilient. That was a point we're trying to make. The shared value model where people, hopefully healthy or sick, perceive value for money. I think the integrated nature of the products creates a, creates a very, very uh, sticky base. And then we've offered concessions if people can't afford their premiums, the ability to use the shared value that they've created and payback benefits to fund premium. So I think the model itself is really resilient and, and robust. At the same time, I think the, I think the values of the, of the organization and the nature and quality of people make it resilient. We've had a governance structure around through this process, a very clarity of thought around protecting our staff, protecting our customers, adding to the community, underpinned by financial strength. And each of those compartments has had kind of an executive team overlooking it, reporting back the financial COVID committee, as we call it, the FCC, has been chaired by myself with about 20 people meeting every every two days, typically, for the last two months. So there's been a, an incredible, how can I say, rapid pace around structure and focusing, I think, on a few simple things. But I think the results have been resilient. If you look at the – in the trading update, we try to give a number of actuarial kind of just dynamics around lapse rates, claims rates, etc. And the business is very resilient. It, it really is. Uh, I must – Credit to our team. They've done a great job. And you've also set aside 3.3 billion rand in provisions. In other words, the COVID-19 impacts that are likely to come into the future. Have you been conservative in that? I don't have to be conservative. I think we have been, as I said, we've modeled out three scenarios, a stress, a central, and kind of a, a good scenario. And we've taken the central scenario, which I think is more conservative than the actual society projections. But it's an iterative thing. We'll see how it plays out. You know, you, you heard now there's a new medication, new cortisone steroid that looks to have good results. That could really 
dramatically lighten mortality. We'll see how it plays out. So this is, we've made the provision on our best estimates in terms of lapses, claims, mortality, morbidity, etc. We will see. I mean, I think, I actually think it is probably conservative. But I think in this kind of thing, it's better to be conservative. Rather have margin going forward than less. I think what we've tried to do is go into the future with a provision that really has paid it forward and therefore grow off this base. So we continue to invest in our new initiatives in Discovery Bank uh, into a number of key issues, and we're quite excited about the progress. And I think on scenarios we think are likely, we think the results will be very good. So I think our staff are feeling pretty confident. I think they deservedly feel good about how they've performed. But um, we know this is a test of our relevance. I mean, you know, I also think something that's come about that's very important is I think a post-COVID period will be everything that we stood for. It will be about health, about wellness, about resilience. So the model itself, I think, is going to have more and more, how can I say, currency. We see that with our partners globally. If we emerge out of this fairly unscathed as a world, I think we'll be very, very well positioned. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Our colleague Linda van Tilburg uh, joins us from London, Linda. And the big news that has been hitting the UK is a drug, dexamethasone. We are seeing that it's being positioned as something of a wonder drug for people who are very ill with COVID-19. Yeah, the drug has been proven to reduce the risk of death significantly in COVID-19 patients on ventilation, they say, by as as much as 35%, and patients on oxygen by 20%, reducing the total or 20-day mortality rate by about 17%. And the UK has immediately approved it and said they have stockpiled um, dexamethasone. We spoke about it last night, uh, and of course here in South Africa today, we discovered that Aspen Pharmaceuticals, uh, a Durban company, uh, manufactures it. I managed to get hold of uh, one of their directors, Stavros Nikolaou, and let's hear what he had to say. It's a corticosteroid, uh, otherwise often known as, as cortisone, and cortisone Based products um, are used for the management and treatment of various inflammatory conditions, and there, there's a multitude of inflammatory conditions, anything from asthma, asthma is an inflammatory condition, to things like a dermatitis, even a skin, uh, a skin inflammation. So it, it has a widespread usage, and it's probably not unsurprising that it's demonstrating. Uh, this effect in COVID because there's been for many weeks now a suggestion that the the virus uh, triggers an immune response and that immune response can potentially disrupt the body's clotting mechanism. And that's why you're starting to see manifestation of, of microclots and very often it's those microclots, it's postulated, that are causing the death of these patients. So this being an anti-inflammatory would suppress at the right time that intense immunological response. So it's probably not as surprising. Um, It is, however, potentially a new indication for this corticosteroid dexamethasone. And before anybody can make the uh, kind of statements that we've seen from the Oxford trial, they have to have a trial. Uh, How exactly do they go about that? And in this case, how many people were involved? So my understanding is that the, the trial included 4,500 patients. Of course, these, these trials follow certain uh, clinical protocols. 
Uh, they're done on a on a double blind basis, uh, meaning that you, you don't really know who's taken the product and who hasn't. And that's to ensure, in business terms, it's a medical governance, if I had to equate it, so that uh, you, you're not found uh, cheating, so to speak. So you do these double blind randomized studies, and uh, that, this study was conducted along those lines, and, and certainly the preliminary results, as I said, uh, have indicated this 30% reduction in mortality, which which is meaningful. Well, meaningful. The, the UK media has gone nuts about it. BBC, Telegraph, Times, wherever you want to have a look there, they're calling it the wonder drug, is it? Look, I, th- I think, you know, it, it depends on, on your view on a 30% reduction. And, uh, you know, all I'd like to say is it's better than anything else has demonstrated thus far. There have been other products like uh, Rendezvous, for example, um, the suggestions also on a preliminary basis, Remdesivir, um, reduces hospital stays by four days. But that's not as impactful as if you're getting a 30% mortality reduction because at the end of the day, you know, what's, what scared the living daylights out of people with COVID is two things that it's, it's highly contagious. And secondly, is that the mortality rates in relative terms are quite high. So if you're reducing those by 30%, I think it is uh, significant and meaningful. And we'll continue to monitor what comes out of the study. Um, but what, you know, what I can say with, uh, with the aspirin product, we have got the injectable form in South Africa. We've got some stocks available and we've got ability to increase the capacity either through partners or in the case of tablets. We could look at there's something called a Section 21 dispensation, which means you can bring an unregistered product into the country under the control of of SAPRA, which is the the Drug Regulatory Agency of South Africa. So we've got those options, and we have got the capability to certainly increase um, capacity for this product, either directly or indirectly. So outside of the corporate uh, impact on Aspen, from a national impact it does mean that South Africa will have plentiful supplies of dexamethasone, whereas some of the other drugs are very difficult for us to get our hands on. So, uh, look, I see uh, Stephen Sard uh, went on record this morning and because uh, we've had an approach from our government, as I indicated earlier, uh, to say that we will certainly do our level best to make sure that we meet South Africa's demands. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a good news story for our country. Now you look for, at these, uh, at these difficult times, Alec, particularly now that we're going into, you know, this next 60 day period is kind of the period we've been dreading. Cause we always said this pandemic's going to start peaking in the third week of July. It looks like we're on track for that. And, and this is when you start seeing overflowing ICUs and deaths, unfortunately. Um, and it's, it's roughly about a 60 day period. You've got to weather the winter storm here. And I think it's, it's, it's nice to have that acknowledgement that there's a South African company. You know, we made, uh, BBC and CNN and it's, it's a nice story during bleak times that a South African company's got this product and it's being globally acknowledged for that. Or, albeit that it's an old product and it's off the back of a study that we only ourselves found out about, you know, 48 hours ago. When I spoke with him, Linda, he explained that this was a product that is about 70 or 80 years old. Uh, they picked it up uh, as uh, part of a transaction that they did when they bought a whole 
basket of drugs, and here it comes, uh, something that they produce in Germany and uh, export to other parts of the world. That full interview uh, is on Biz News Radio, but uh, from our perspective, from Inside COVID-19 uh, perspective this evening, it really is good news to have a South African company uh, that has the manufacturing capability to support the national effort. Well, I think it's really lucky, and it seems that in this pandemic, South Africa is lucky every now and then. There's there's little bit of a South African connection that we find ourselves in the right place at the moment. And if you can reduce death, because I think that was the big fear, that if you land on a ventilator, that you might not make it. And if that can reduce, first of all, that fear and, and the reduction in, in the fatality rate. The UK said they could have saved 4,000 to 5,000 lives if they had this earlier. And it's come at a really good time for South Africa, uh, as Stavros was suggesting, that we are in a eye of the storm coming up, the real bad part of COVID-19 to hit South Africa in the next four weeks. So tighten your seatbelts for that. South America is going through what we are likely to be experiencing in the next few weeks. And uh, you picked up quite an interesting clip from one of our partners on this. Yeah, Latin America, they say, is exploding with coronavirus. Um, a top World Health Organization official said that Latin America is now officially the epicenter of COVID-19. And um, what, what they actually call it now a grim laboratory of a viral pandemic. What makes this interesting is that there are, again, similarities between what's happening in South America and the, the Americas, uh, Central America as well. There's also the issue of people living in crowded conditions in the belts of Bogota, Lima, Sao Paulo and Mexico City, which makes social distancing like it is in our townships very difficult. So if you need to feed two or three kids, you need to go out. So so that is the issue that Jason Gale from the Wall Street Journal is dis- is discussing with the World Health Organization's Carissa Etienne. We are seeing rising levels of transmission, some of them exponentially in um, Brazil, in Chile and Peru, in South America, in Mesoamerica, in, in Mexico, also Panama and Costa Rica. At the start of the pandemic, Latin American countries closed their borders and issued physical distancing measures. But Carissa says the virus eventually came in with returning travelers. So the early cases of COVID-19 were returning nationals who had been to Europe, holidaying in um, Spain and Italy and France for the most part. And then they were returning home and were being diagnosed. These initial cases often had the space and financial resources to self-isolate, so it was easy to control the spread. But Carissa says eventually COVID reached poor and vulnerable communities where transmission was much harder to contain. That was especially the case in crowded urban areas with inadequate access to water and sanitation. In many of our, of our vulnerable populations, they belong to an informal um, economy. So they have to go out every day. They must go out every day for their livelihood. Um, they share public transportation. They cannot implement physical distancing. There is no facility for hand washing. So in, in fact, all of the, all of the public health measures that we are insisting to, to be able to protect yourself, they can't. 
they don't have significant access to health services. Even when when the government says, well, you can come to health services and um, and it's free, but they are so not used to running to a health service for a cough or a hold because normally they would have to pay or the service is so far away from them. So so that's that's complicates really the efforts of the government to seal the transmission. Carissa says the coronavirus is exposing vulnerabilities among certain racial and ethnic groups. The migrant population, the um, urban urban population that, that are living in low-income areas, Afro-descendants, so the black population in Latin America is, is, is a vulnerable group as well. We saw around the Amazon basin, we are seeing really large number of uh, outbreaks with large number of cases. The two most vulnerable groups in, in even Brazil is your Afro-descendant population and the indigenous population. And when they catch the coronavirus, they're more likely to get sicker because they already suffer from higher rates of tuberculosis, diabetes and chronic diseases known to increase the severity of COVID-19. And that also makes them potentially more infectious. When they come into contact with a COVID-19 case, it just spreads in, in that community. Carissa says Latin America is also experiencing a rise in cases because countries don't have sufficient access to gloves, face masks and other personal protective equipment, or PPE, gear needed to keep healthcare workers safe. It isn't made locally, and shortages have led to infections among healthcare workers. The, the percentage rates differ from countries to countries, but yes, we are seeing a, a, a moderate uh, level of infection of healthcare workers. Because they have no PPEs, because they have to reuse PPEs, because so um, that is a problem. Still, Carissa says some Caribbean nations have managed to contain transmission. They're a small population, but they very early, they instituted very strict public health measures. They closed their borders. They uh, instituted lockdowns, um, severe social distancing. They did a lot of risk communications. Uh, As well, they were prepared with testing. They did contact tracing, they isolated, and they quarantined. They, they were a perfect public health uh, uh, um, case. And I think what has helped the um, English-speaking Caribbean as well, all of them have well-developed primary health care um, systems with public health. And so they have already healthcare workers in the districts who are trained to do contact tracing, who are trained to, um, to visit, um, do home visiting, to, um, they know where the population lives and who they are. Carissa says the intensity of COVID-19 differs across the Americas and there's no uniformity in when transmission will peak. By and large, cases are still rising and modelling predicts that might continue for some weeks. Certainly for countries in, in Latin America, the 12 countries or so, that we will continue to see um, rise, rise in transmissions and probably the next three or four weeks. Yeah. So in Haiti, we probably will see peaking maybe in six weeks or five weeks. You know, What worries us and concerns us is that even with the rising transmission, um, some countries are looking to open up to relax the the stay-at-home measures, and more people entering the workplace, entering um, um, societies. Carissa was responsible for drawing up the region's plan for an influenza pandemic in 2006. She says the coronavirus pandemic 
is nothing like she'd imagined. COVID-19 has taught her a couple of things, the importance of a solid primary health system and equitable access to health care. I have characterized this pandemic as a crisis of health, a crisis of the economy and a social crisis. And, and I, I think as we go forward, we, we need to, to plan differently. So we need to do social inclusion and, and, and look after people's, people's needs much better. But I think we need to think going forward and, and with an approach that is based on equity, on human rights and solidarity, because really countries cannot think of going it alone. It, it, they have to come together. They have to share experiences. While economic development has been a major priority for many countries in the Americas, the pandemic has shown how quickly and devastatingly a virus can undermine years, if not decades, of prosperity. Carissa says she's no doubt the world will face more pandemics. What's important is that we learn the lessons from this one. Yeah, and maybe that last part is something that's giving us a reflection into the future here in South Africa. Quite a few things that came out of that, Linda, uh, and for me, the big one there is the way she says that there are going to be more pandemics coming next time. We better be ready for them. And South Africa has been talking about national health insurance or national health capability for a long time. Uh, it's been badly exposed of how poor our um, health care in the public sector is at the moment. And you can almost bet that there's going to be a lot more pressure uh, to start rolling that out, despite the uh, those who, who fight against it on economic uh, grounds. Yeah, President Cyril Ramaphosa also talked about this new partnership between the private sector and the public sector and that that could be the beginning of the National Health Service. But it's, affordability is always going to be a problem. Yeah, but when you start seeing thousands of people dying, as they have been doing in South America, politicians don't get re-elected if they don't give the public the things that the public wants. It's going to be an interesting development there, but I guess the big thing for South Africa that comes out of that discussion uh, is the impact that there's been on people with TB, the Afro-descendant populations, and uh, migrant populations, people living in confined spaces, uh, it, all of which doesn't bode well for us, particularly as the storm hits us in the next four weeks. No, listening to that, you could almost take names out and just put a couple of African names in and it would totally have applied. Isn't it interesting, though, that the pandemic started in China, then it moved to Europe. There we saw the hotspot and uh, some crazy uh, situations where people were turned away from the hospitals. Then it moved to the uh, United States, North America, and there uh, they've, well, they've had, what, 120,000 deaths now. Now it's starting to catch, uh, catch fire in South America. I guess you just got to believe that uh, things are going to start, the storm will hit us here in South Africa, as, as Stavros Nikolaus said just a little while earlier. Yes, and well, the thing about being in the UK is we sort of almost over it. So it's it's nice to think that there will be an end. 
and you know you, you look at countries reopening up and yes there is sort of a surge of little cases but we de- we know more about how to deal with it the longer this goes along i mean look there's a new drug and maybe by the time africa is late on this curve maybe by then we've learned a lot and we do not have to have the fatalities that you see that you've seen in europe Let's finish off with something a little lighter now. Uh, the whole story about restaurants. Where did you pick this up? Well, on the Wall Street Journal, um, it, it, there was a there was a report saying that you know restaurants are reopening in the United States in some states, even though their cases, some of their case, cases, are, st- are still rising, and. Just how difficult it was, and how different it made the restaurants. And we, uh, well, suddenly, apparently, there's a lot fewer options on the menu, which you know people are used to so much choice. And one thing I saw that is going that would affect South Africa as well is when you go to McDonald's, you apparently have an all-day breakfast, and that's being one of the things being dropped in the in the United States. So this is quite interesting. This is a Wall Street Journal host Mark Stewart talking to. Heather Haddon, she's on the restaurant beat of the Wall Street Journal, of how it's all changing. And I just want to say in South Africa, of course, sitting down for a meal at restaurants and on-site consumption of liquor is still restricted in South Africa. There is a lobby group, the Restaurant Collective, that said that the lockdown in South Africa could be the nail in the coffin for the restaurant industry. So maybe some lessons here from Heather Haddon on how restaurants should reopen up. These changes are happening now and they're happening very quickly. So actually, we visited an Applebee's in Michigan and got a sense of what it looked like to eat there right when it reopened. You walk in, there's a sanitation table there. There is a specialist just designated for sanitation who is wiping down tables and booths constantly throughout the day. There are servers wearing masks. There's arrows to guide you through the restaurant. So when you enter, you go one way and when you exit, you exit through a new back door. There are bathrooms that are just uh, unisex and for one person only. So there are a lot of changes to try to make this as clean and safe as possible. The question I think remains is will people want to eat in this kind of environment? It's not what you would associate normally with a restaurant. What about menu items? Are restaurants making adjustments when it comes to the food and the types of food they serve? Absolutely. Yeah, that is something that's been really interesting to come out of the crisis. Very quickly, all kinds of restaurant chains from McDonald's again to Applebee's took items off their menus because it just made their operations so much simpler. And at a time where they were trying to digest all these changes and loss of business at once and uh, really sacrifices to their bottom line, they thought this was an area that they could prune a bit. So, um, you know, I've talked to Chili's and another casual dining chain, they took something like a third of their menu items off their menus just to make things easier for now. So you look at a Wendy's or a McDonald's, you know, big, high volume fast food. You did see things like salads come off. At Wendy's, they said they took some wraps off. McDonald's suspended their all day breakfast, just kept it at uh, the morning day part. So the real question is, do they stick with that? Do customers care? Do they miss all those different kind of menu items? Or is this something that they don't and they're just happy to eat out in a restaurant? And going forward, there might be a few fewer options on restaurant menus.
We have seen smaller restaurants close because of these financial pressures. Will the big chains be able to to manage these costs? As you mentioned, demand is down. These are not cheap fixes. So far, they say so. I think it really depends on how well they were doing before the crisis. You know, some of these casual dining chains were just barely getting by on very thin margins beforehand. Um, some of these kind of classic chains that you might have grown up going to but had fallen out of favor while Chipotle's and other kind of chains like that had been really doing well. So this is expensive for them. Uh, and I have talked to owners of some of these uh, franchise chains. They are reevaluating their their portfolio restaurants. They might close some restaurants to be able to really put all their eggs into the restaurants that are doing well or relatively well compared to some of the others. Let's talk about restaurant culture. For anyone who has worked at a restaurant or who has family members or friends who have worked in a restaurant, there are very strong social bonds that are formed, whether it be the greeter, whether it be the bartender or the wait staff. Are those relationships perhaps going away in this new environment that we are in? I think they will have to change. You know, being a server was all about hospitality and showing your face and, you know, being warm and greeting a customer through a mask. That's just different. Also, these chains are really making sure that only one person touch, as they say, touch the customers. So it is limiting interaction between the between the customer and the server. The chains themselves say, no, this will deepen interactions because it's just one person handling your whole time there at the restaurant. I, I think it remains to be seen. Again, this is through a mask. Um, you know, people aren't going to be lingering at tables. So we're really going to have to see how servers um, get creative with this. Heather, you know this sector of the economy very well. I think a reasonable question is, will these changes be permanent or do you think that there is perhaps a goal to phase this out and go back to what we were used to before the pandemic? I think some of these things are permanent. So you talk about all the sanitation, this, these these employees hired just to sanitize. The chains are saying that this is permanent. They want to keep these employees, you know, for now to just really reassure customers that things are really clean and safe. Um, I mean, who knows about masks? I think we're going to have to see, you know, if there's a vaccine, if there's another uptick in cases, which it does seem like there might be. But uh, for now, the chains are saying a lot of these things are permanent. So restaurant eating will really change for the future. Well, an interesting story there. Uh, we've been covering this quite closely with Grace Harding, who's the CEO of Ocean Basket. And all South African restaurants are closed. You can't go out and have a meal except you can order takeaways. So uh, that was uh, from level five. You couldn't even get that. In level three, you're allowed takeaways. And the restaurants here in South Africa are uh, lobbying very hard uh, to see whether they can be given the responsibility of bringing people back in. It'll be interesting to see whether they have any success in that. 600,000 plus people who are directly impacted in this part of the South African economy. So a very important story, that one, Linda. Yeah. Well, here in the UK, they've been trying to get them to reopen the pubs. And after initial decision, they would say they might open it. They have not even reopened the gardens of pubs. So they, you know, rest- they said they just don't know how to do it. And restaurants aren't open. Aren't open also. So in the UK, which is, well, some weeks uh, further advanced on 
uh, COVID-19 pandemic than South Africa. Um, restaurants still not opened at all, in any form at all. No, only takeaways, no form at all. Although I dropped off my son in, in sort of a very trendy, you know, near Clapton Junction area where the young people live. And a lot of restaurants are selling drinks outside. But you also queue, there's also the social distancing, and then people go and consume it in box. So it's, it's, it's picking up, but they're not opening restaurants, anything where it's a closed restaurant. Some open areas are opening up. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. The next interview is one that I found really fascinating, as I guess we all do when it comes to understanding the way that the criminal mind works. Ricky Crook is the chief executive of VumaCam, which is a very ambitious project invested in by VumaTel, the fiber company, that is wanting to put up cameras throughout the whole Johannesburg metropole. Now, they've gone quite some distance already and have seen some significant impacts. In this interview, Ricky tells us that crime fell off a cliff when Level 5 lockdown began on the 26th of March. Unfortunately, however, it has substantially increased since then and criminals have found new targets. Have a listen. So we've primarily focused on the city of Joburg and really the focus point is, you know, that's been our incubator to prove the concept in terms of really proving this this network effect and making sure that you've got enough density to prove that you can reduce crime and actually make an impact. We've already started in Mahali City. We've also started in Equileni, and we're looking to, to reach into Chwane, KZN, and City of Cape Town. Ricky, just going back a little bit, I spent a few years in London, three years in London recently, and everywhere you walk around that city, you will see cameras. That's a legacy of the terrorist issues they had uh, with the IRA going back some years. Is that a similar kind of a, an end game for cities in South Africa, given the, the level of crime? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's a case of the fourth industrial revolution and moving towards technology and using technology to fight crime. Technology is obviously a lot easier and you can roll out as opposed to trying to put, you know, bobbies of the beat or, or police in on every single corner. So who pays for the cameras though? So we've, uh, as shareholders have, have paid for the infrastructure and really our business model is a, a feed per camera and we then commercialize it through the private sector to the private security companies. Instead of them putting up their own infrastructure and everyone putting isolation and different camera networks that don't talk to each other, we said because of the fiber rollout, let's roll out a platform of cameras, which are all, you know, centrally talk back to a central depository. And then we will then work with the different security companies so that you can stop incidents from taking place. So I'll give you an example where you have an incident on a Tuesday in one security company's area. Once the perpetrators leave, you put the information into the database. As soon as on the Wednesday they're trying to go into someone else's area, well, that security company can prevent that incident from taking place because it will alert them that this car has been involved in a robbery previously and you can prevent that incident from taking place. So the cameras read not only what's going on in the area, but car registration numbers. So we've got two sets of cameras on all of our poles. One is a dedicated number plate recognition camera, which does scan every number plate and then queries it against SAP's database. So we have done integration to the, the Unicode database, which can tell you if the cars have been involved in crime 
and if it's a wanted car. And if it is, it will then alert that security company that has stolen or suspicious cars, you know, coming through into that area and they need to act and do something about it. Okay. COVID-19 brought a lockdown on the 26th of March, level five. Did crime evaporate as a consequence? So we saw crime fall off a cliff. We previously had our own security company. So we've been involved in the security sector for the last 15 years. And there's not been many days or weeks, you know, where we've literally seen no crime taking place. During those first three weeks of lockdown, we saw almost zero crime happening. And then? And then as you open up and crime levels start increasing and we see different crimes, you know, took place in, in different phases as soon as you start opening up in terms of there's now a new way into a lot of people were doing exercise specifically from six o'clock to nine o'clock. So you saw like a high concentration of people on the streets during these times. Opportunists would be out at the, at the same time. You'd see like a fortunate amount of cell phone snatching and uh, snatching grabs and things like that taking place. And as you go through the different levels, you see different trends that are taking place. Uh, more recently, we're seeing a lot of like career companies being targeted. So people are obviously at home, you're ordering online and you, you now, you know, the career companies are coming to drop off your goods and they're being held up in the residence driveways and the goods in the cars are being taken. How do you protect against that? So it's quite difficult to protect against it. I think what we specifically doing and we talking to them from like an industry perspective is there's often the similar modus operandi and the similar cars that are involved. So with the same cars that are involved, you can get the registrations. And again, if those registrations are seen in specific areas, or well, you can alert the local security companies, SAPS, JMPD, and you can start intervening as well as when an incident does take place, because we're building this network of cameras, as soon as they leave the scene, you know, that alert then put into the database. We then put it out to all the different security companies using our technology. We work closely with SAPS and JMPD, and we've actually put an instance of our platform in the provincial war room. So as soon as the, these alerts get passed, they get seen, it gets disseminated to multiple, and I'm saying north of 40, 50 different security companies, as well as uh, SAPS. And we could often have maybe, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 vehicles now chasing that same suspect. And the wider you put out that network of cameras, the harder it is to get off the grid. So we've seen massive times where there's been interceptions and guys have committed a crime. They've gone through the network of camera and a security company or SAPS has pulled them off and actually made an arrest. Ricky, I see many cars driving around Johannesburg with no number plates at all. Uh, Is that a giveaway signal that they're up to no good? No. So our cameras have the sophistication to alert of a no number plate. It does flag as an alert car without a number plate. But it's not necessarily most of the time that you'll see is that criminals are quite sophisticated. They've gone so far as driving a type of car where they've actually cloned the number plate of a car that's exactly the same. So if they took a Merc C-Class, they would look at a Merc C-Class in at a shopping center. They'd go clone the plates, drive around with it. It looks like you're driving with legitimate plates. It's much safer as opposed to you know, there's a good chance that if you do have no number plates that a SAPS or JMPD would pull you over and you know, start questioning you. So you don't really see that, that happening more around the, the cloned uh, number plates. So it's cloned. It's not, they don't take a chance and just put any old number plate on a car. 
Yeah, so because of the sophistication, and as you start building out the technology, you can start looking at make color model of vehicle. But really what the guys want to do is they're going to go train a number plate because they know that that hasn't been reported as stolen. It, it matches the same car. Even if you get put, if you go through a roadblock, everything will be fine. So they go through the efforts of, of training the number plates as opposed to anything else. Obviously, you've got different degrees of criminality and some are more sophisticated than others. So sometimes guys would clone a number plate, but it would be on a different kind of car. So that a dead giveaway. But as the guys get cleverer and start understanding the technology, they evolve pretty quickly. You said that crime fell off a cliff after the 26th of March on the heavy lockdown. Are we now back to pre-lockdown levels? We were back probably from the 1st of June, I'd say. As you went to, I think, level three, crime would, would pretty much come back. And actually, we see year on year or the week on week, there, there is an increase in crime purely just from the, the economic factors that are you know taking place with more people that haven't earned over the period. A lot more people have lost their jobs. There's a lot less money in circulation. We have seen a spike from a year on year comparison. And how are you helping to fight crime? So we're helping by enabling the security industry and SAPs through our technology. With the technology that we put out and, you know, continuously put out, you know, more cameras on a daily basis, just gives more awareness and, and more eyes out in the field. And we've seen a, a big impact. So we've seen probably close to 25 to 30 arrests in the last two to three weeks taking place through our, our platform purely because you've got stolen cars or cars that have been involved in crimes that are put through the network and then different companies, you know, making those arrests as well as SAPs assisting as well as JMPDs. We really just see ourselves as the glue to a platform that pulls the private and the public sector together in the fight against crime. Are you yet seeing lower incidences of crime in the areas where your cameras are relative to areas where you don't have a presence? Definitely. So, you know, where there is densification of camera networks, you know, there's a couple of housing student accommodations that put together a cluster of cameras of our network in Dunfontein. Since the cameras went up, we saw crime moving decreasing by up to 55%. Where you do have cameras, it's like any security initiative. The more visibility, the more security that you put into an area, you do see it displacing and moving to other areas. And that's why our big drive is to not just to cover, you know, certain regions. It's really to have a full network effect. And we're just waiting for our waves, but we want to extend into Alexander and into Dipslot, into Soweto. So that, you know, it's really a full network as opposed to we can protect little pockets, but then guys, you know, still have, have ability to get off the grid. Are the criminals understanding this yet? Are they understanding that uh, they shouldn't be doing crime in areas where Vermichel cameras exist? I don't know too many criminals. So it's, quite, it's quite difficult for me to tell. But as I say, you can see in areas where the cameras have gone up, certain arrests have, have taken place, and red cameras aren't a silver bullet. So it's, it's not going to be a case you put up a camera and crime will decrease. It's, it's part of an ecosystem. So you want to get situational awareness to understand what's happening, but then you need to send out a vehicle to question or you send out SAFs to investigate further and it really works as, as an ecosystem 
And it's quite difficult for the one to operate without the other because if you have only people and vehicles, it's hard to be everywhere at, at the same point in time. And if you only got cameras, well, you'll never understand what's actually happening on the ground because you need that human intervention. So it's part of that full ecosystem and a solution. And are there international examples that you are modeling yourselves on? 100%. So we look at the, the EU standards, both from a technology perspective and from a, a privacy perspective. So a lot of our, our modeling does happen with from international standards. There's a lot of countries that are, are very advanced in terms of their technologies and, and been using cameras. And I think you, you alluded to the UK for many years have been quite pro cameras. You're seeing a lot of other countries taking that same stance in, in putting up cameras. And we're looking at best of breed technologies, but as well from a privacy and, and protection perspective, because one thing is, is safety, but another thing is people's movement and uh, protection of information. This has been episode 48 of Inside COVID-19. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.